Good morning, everyone. My name is Hudson Payne, and I'll be reading out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. I'll be reading the ESV version. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision that was made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You guys can take a seat. Man, I don't know if you can tell, but um, something's weighing on me heavy this morning. Um, in my studies this week, <clears throat> God showed me that the church is so prone to deception. We are so feeble and weak on our own, willing to be deceived and led astray. I, I believe that the Spirit has a word for us this morning in Colossians 2. And um, I loved what Brian started with in Psalm 119. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Holy Father, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So I've got um, three questions for us. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I'll, I'll say them pretty slowly, but... Uh, the first one, how do you know, if you are a Jesus follower, how do you know how to follow Jesus? How do you know how to follow Jesus? The second question, how do you know what you know about God? How do you know how to follow Jesus? And how do you know what you know about God. And the third one, how do you know what you know about yourself? When I was in eighth grade, I had my lunch money stolen for the week. It was a Monday morning. I was at football practice. Um, and I got back to my locker uh, after changing and found that my $15 for the week was gone, back when $15 took care of lunch for the week. Um, that hurt me as an eighth grader. I think I was 12 or 13 years old. And I went and told my coaches, and they, they just kind of blew me off and said, well, you need to be more careful. Lock your locker. It was, but um, they also said, go tell your parents not to send you to school with so much money. And so, first I was robbed, and then I was blamed. It wasn't just this instance, this situation, but many throughout my life that had led me to learn from the world that when I sin, when I do something wrong, or when something bad happens to me, my role is to then hide to be ashamed of my sin, to point the finger at God or at myself 
when something happens to me. It didn't just teach me how to relate to God and how to relate to myself, but it taught me how to relate to others. That anytime something happened to other people, there's fingers to be pointed, right? When I got home and told my mom what had happened, um, she responded quite differently. First, she hugged me. She comforted me. She felt hurt with me. And then she restored what was lost. I got to eat a zebra cake on Tuesday because I had that extra $3. The life of a Christian is one that resists being deceived into the lifeless and arrogant wisdom of the world. The life of a Christian is one that depends on Jesus to restore and revive us. I'm going to say that again because in a way, these are the answers to our questions. Those questions are more for your reflection, more for you to take home through the week and consider, how do I know what I know? And so these two sentences are to help you answer those questions. The life of a Christian is one that resists being deceived by the lifeless and arrogant wisdom of the world. And the life of a Christian is one that depends on Jesus to restore and revive us. I feel like that gospel has been preached again and again this morning already. In verse 8, we see that that Paul starts with this, this message to not be deceived by saying, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. This was um, a phrase, this takes you captive is a phrase that uh, Paul uses to illustrate um, pirates plundering a ship. So see to it that you don't get plundered, that you don't get taken as a, a prisoner of war or a treasure that's been robbed. See to it that no one takes you captive. And I've experienced this physical type of being robbed, this tangible plundering, right, in eighth grade. But also, I've experienced spiritual plundering. I've known what it's like to be robbed of the truth about God and myself. To be convinced about, to be convinced of something about God that's not true, that either leads to my faith being weak or entirely abandoned. To be convinced about the truth of who I am and who my neighbors are. You see, um, through the course of of growing up, I grew up in the church, um, but there was competing ideologies in all of us. The church and the world tend to teach us different things and um, what I learned from the world was that when I sin, I hide. That's my role, is to hide. To be ashamed. And so I wouldn't pray. After sinning, it would, it would take me days, if not more than a week, to pray. To feel like I could approach God in prayer. To feel like I was worthy of reading scripture again. Have you all ever felt that way? Have you ever pointed the finger at yourself after sinning? 
that's not Christ. I felt like I deserved bad because I did bad. That is not Jesus. That's a whole other religion. That's karma. No, Jesus in John 8 tells the woman that was caught in adultery, caught in sin, and brought to the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Regularly, abundantly, Jesus was accused, welcomed accusation of being friends with sinners. That is a comfort to you and me. We are sinners, and Jesus calls us friends. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This philosophy literally meaning the love of wisdom. Now, wisdom is good. Philosophy is good if it is in submission to God. The love of wisdom is a virtue. We should love wisdom and knowledge. We should grow in our intellectual beings. But the love of wisdom itself, wisdom for wisdom's sake, is empty and deceitful. There's a, I believe this was an um, early 20th century preacher that said, um, sometimes we think that we're enlarging or we're, we're um, expanding our minds in gaining knowledge, but really we're just swelling our heads. Why are we growing in wisdom? Is it for our sake or for wisdom's sake or is it to know Jesus more? The Holy Spirit in Proverbs, just like in Paul's letter, just like at the very beginning of Colossians 1, tells us that true life-giving wisdom, true life-giving wisdom is growing in the knowledge of God, not finding it out on our own and trying to figure this world out apart from him. And then we get empty deceit. This is a phrase that alludes to a way of thinking that doesn't bear fruit. Empty, vain, fruitless. Like a vineyard that won't go, grow grapes. There's no life. There's no progress. There's no transformation. That's how we know when wisdom is for wisdom's sake. What does it contribute to your flourishing in Christ? Empty deceit. Fruitless thinking. So we can say it this way. <clears throat> Don't be taken captive. Don't be plundered by the love of wisdom and fruitless thinking. Following the way of one human tradition and two elemental spirits or worldly religion. I'll explain that in just a second. So in the day of the Colossians, um, this reference to human tradition means the Jewish practices outside of the given law. right? So outside of... Um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the laws uh, instructions for sacrifices and temple worship and how to follow him. Good laws, good practices. Outside of God's given law, we have 600 plus traditions of men that were heaped onto God's law as a barrier. And because Jesus, the Messiah, was a Jew... The Colossian church was pressured into following these Jewish traditions. 
even Jesus condemned these practices as having any importance for spirituality. Let's turn to Mark 7. Mark is, I don't know, I kind of go back and forth between Mark and John being my favorite of the gospel accounts. Mark 7. Mark is Peter's retelling of the life of Christ. We're going to start in verse 5 through 8. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, these are the ones who um, stuck to the traditions, those 600 plus laws. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Following behind what everyone else is doing, what the generation before us has always done, has more potential for spiritual bondage has more potential for a misunderstanding of God and ourselves. And what we need is to reorient our thinking and our doing around the person and the work of Jesus. Later in that Isaiah, the very next line, God says, I'm going to crush the wisdom of man. I'm going to put to shame the glory of these elders. Our instruction comes from God. Like Psalm 119, 73. You have formed me. You have designed me and made me. I need you to give me understanding. The Spirit is alive. And the Spirit dwells in the believer. We have access to God. We don't need the traditions of men. Now there's a, a, a competing um, word, there's a, there's a competing thought for this word traditions because in, in other areas, Peter, uh, Paul and Peter do actually talk about um, see to it that you follow the traditions that we've handed on to you, right? This is in 2 Thessalonians. I think it's also in First or Second Peter. See to it that you follow the traditions that we've given you. These are traditions that were given to them from Jesus. Talking specifically of the Lord's Supper that is from Christ and focused on Christ. Talking of baptism that is from Christ, focused on Christ. So when Peter and Paul say follow our traditions, they're they're talking about the traditions of the apostles that were given to them for the flourishing of the Jesus follower to know and love Jesus more. Not the traditions, the commandments of men that were heaped onto God's law to make sure that they could stay obedient. The traditions of Christ are dependent on Christ for obedience. Verse 8 also refers to elemental spirits. We see... Elemental spirits, uh, principalities, um, the elements of this world. We see that in Galatians 4, 2 Peter 3. It also shows up in Hebrews 5. 
But what that is, is like this basic religion that we see around the world, this polytheistic religion, that there's deities or gods that rule the water. There's, there's a God that rules finances. There's a God that rules sexuality. There's a God that rules health. And all of these gods added together, like elements, like the ABCs of spirituality, all of these gods added together gives us a complete pantheon of gods to worship. And Paul is saying that the love of wisdom and fruitless thinking comes from this basic worldly religious structure, that there's a God for every segment of our lives in the world. Do y'all remember when the iPhone came out and the App Store was introduced? You remember that commercial? What did the commercial say? There's an app for that. There's an app for that. That's right. You can think of this, this, these Roman deities, this, this pressure on the Colossian church, not only to obey Jewish traditions, but also to treat the Roman gods like an ancient Roman app store. Is your kid sick? There's, there's a God for that. Are you low on cash this week? There's a God for that. Do you want protection against the next flood that comes our way that the gods send us because we've been disobedient? There's a God for that. The problem is that when, when we give in to these traditions and these cumulative religious uh, these elemental spirits, when we sacrifice to the God of health, the God of war, the God of natural disasters, you devalue the role of Jesus in your life. This is why Paul was writing to the Colossians. Because by giving in to the pressures of the Jews, by giving in to the pressures of the Roman deities, they brought other things up to value with Jesus, which devalued Jesus. We actually start to believe that maybe there is something to these gods that I keep visiting every week. Maybe there is some contribution to my life that these gods will look after me if I give them this portion of my money, if I um, sacrifice this many of my sheep. You keep sacrificing to these gods, you stop believing that Jesus is the one that won your soul and that you have some contribution to make. And we call these religions Judaism and mythology. We stick them in our textbooks and kind of stuff them away for class. But it's easy for us to pretend like we don't also live this way. It's easy to look at that and be like, oh, okay, those Colossians, man, they're rough living in a pagan world. We, Brian and I have talked about heart idols before. Um, we've, we've even confessed on stage that our biggest struggle is approval. We love approval. Our hearts want to be right with people. Maybe your heart idol is control or power. That's not exactly where I'm going, although that does have something to say. What I'm talking about is what have we learned from the world around us about serving those idols? Because in 2021, we call that karma or superstition. And you, you're probably thinking, I'm, I don't believe in karma. 
I'm not superstitious. If you're a fan of The Office, you're probably thinking, I'm a little stitious. <laughs> but this way of thinking is subtle. The world is crafty. The enemy is plundering us, and he's sneaky. It's not going to be obvious. He's not going to walk around and plaster uh, Roman gods on our billboards. No, he's going to put up a, a crunch fitness billboard. You sacrifice to the God of health rather than spend time in the word with Jesus. And I'm not elevating, you know, one religious duty over going to the gym. We'll, we'll work that out here in just a second. But when something terrible happens to you or to somebody else, do you think, man, I had it coming. I was rude to this person. Or, or wow, they really had it coming. Their life was a train wreck before that. Do we think this way? Be honest with yourself. I'm not asking for you to respond to me. I want you to be thinking What about if I do this certain thing, if I read my Bible, God's going to be happy with me. Or if I, if I do this thing, if I cuss or smoke or drink or whatever I think is religiously taboo, if I engage in this practice, I get on God's bad side. This is what our flesh tells us. This is what the world tells us. This is what the enemy Satan wants us to believe about God, about ourselves, and about one another because we treat one another the same way. When somebody hurts you, how do you respond? Punitive action. Silent treatment. I'm angry at you. We can see whether we really believe in grace and mercy with how we treat people how we treat ourselves. There's a song by Chance the Rapper. He says, when the blessings, or when the praises go up, anybody know the other half of that lyric? The blessings come down. And that's the whole song. God's not a vending machine. We don't pay him with our praises to get out the blessings and the favor of God. Should we praise God? Absolutely. Not because he gives us blessings, but because he's worthy. How do you react to your own sin? Do you hide? Do you punish yourself? What about when you do good? Does it make you feel good? Does that make you feel like you've got on God's good side? This is not Christ. This is karma and superstition. Because what if I told you that in Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, you have already been accepted by God the Father? There's nothing you can do to earn acceptance with God. Brian, there is nothing you can do to win approval from your heavenly Father. He already approves of you. You don't need control over your life because the God of heaven has complete control over your life. And there is nothing that will separate you from him. And he is a good and loving God. 
God is always already happy with you if you are in Christ. I've quoted this before. I still need to do the research and figure out. It's a rabbit trail to figure out who actually said this quote because it's been repeated so much. You are loved by God as much as you are in Christ. And if you put your hope and your faith in Jesus, that's 100%. Jesus says in Mark 1, the kingdom's here, repent and believe. If you have repented and believe, if you have turned to him and put your faith in Jesus, you are loved by God the Father as much as you are in Christ. And that is 100%. You can't do anything to change that. Be on guard against any way of thinking that teaches you something different about Jesus. This rest of our passage, verses 9 and 10, we'll go back to Colossians 2. It instructs us to be on guard by getting our thoughts right about Jesus. By getting our thoughts right about who we are in Jesus. Let's look at verse 9. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have a God like you, human, fully human, standing next to God the Father, interceding for you. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, became just like you, to be tempted to sin just like you, to be weak just like you. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If Jesus did not come as fully man, he could not fill you. If he came only as fully God, there's still a separation between the spiritual and the physical. But because Jesus came as this union of spiritual and physical, this fully God, fully man, 100% God, he can fill you with the goodness of God, with the fruit of the Spirit, with the love of the Father. And he does this through his Holy Spirit that he gives us when we trust and we believe in him. It's Jesus who has made God fully known, true knowledge, true wisdom, true philosophy, not empty, deceitful thinking, but true thinking has been revealed to us in Jesus. Let me tell you something. How we know Jesus is right here. This whole thing is a story of the Messiah. We read the Old Testament. We should be thinking that God has a redemptive plan For all people, not just me, all people that have ever lived. It's called the Old Testament. And he brings that redemptive plan to culmination in his son, Jesus. This whole Bible reveals to us God. Because it reveals to us Jesus. Through God's revealed word, we can know about our relationship with God the Father. We can know what God the Son has done on our behalf. And we can know the gifts that we have with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Where the deceit 
of the wisdom of man will leave you empty and spiritually bankrupt. The promise of Jesus is that you are not just given a share of his life, you are filled with his life. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness that God gives you in his spirit. Because um, approval is one of the hard idols that I wrestle with that um, my flesh is prone to trick me into, I can assume easily that somebody is upset with me. And it's all assumption. It doesn't have to be true. The signals that I've picked up on, I might be socially awkward, but that's probably because I'm constantly thinking about people's approval. And I need the Holy Spirit to put that to death in me because it's easy for me to read into things that just aren't true, that just aren't there. And so how do I not become enslaved to this? How do I not just give my life over to this thinking? It's hard because it consumes my imagination. It captivates, it takes me captive to think about what other people think of me. But John 15, 15 through 16, I didn't give this um, scripture to them to put on the the board because I kind of just want you to think, just consider John 15, 15 through 16. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and just dwell on that, or you can just listen to me. The knowledge and wisdom that Jesus gives us in his word fights sin. We trust him to put those things to death in us when we depend on him. John 15, 15 and 16. Jesus says to his followers, no longer do I call you slaves. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friend. You did not choose me. I chose you. So that you would bear fruit in this world. No longer do I call you servant, but I call you friend. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is God calling you friend, saying that he chose you. This is the wisdom of God revealed to us through scripture that's ready for us, that's ready to train us in the way that we think, the way that we live in this world. How do we interact with scripture? What's the role of scripture in your life? Is it merely preventative medicine that keeps you from the displeasure of God? Or is it the living and active revelation to you about the God that loves you so dearly? Brian shared this quote with me this week. Uh, Howard Hendricks says this. I think it's his preaching book, is that right? Teaching. Teaching book. He says... Don't limit Jesus Christ to some religious compartment and say, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. Wake up to the realization that
that each day you can give the Lord of your life even greater control over every aspect of your being. You can give the Lord of your life even greater control over every aspect of your being. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Um, We get these two concepts of uh, circumcision and baptism. Circumcision being a practice uh, that was given to the Hebrews, given to the Jews by God as a symbol, a representation of God setting them apart, of them being chosen to be God's people, the family of God, okay? Now, what verse 11 has to say to us is that in Christ, we've already been set apart. So because Jesus lived a perfect life, he held up all of the legal demands that were tied to circumcision. He lived all of those perfectly. And then he died a death on our behalf because we could not uphold all of those laws. He died a death on our behalf, and then he rose to new life. So that this promise of circumcision would not be limited to a physical procedure, but would be a heart procedure. Our hearts have been circumcised by Jesus. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30. Let me tell you something. God will always value the spiritual over the physical. So this kind of heart circumcision is more valuable to us than any legal demands, than any physical procedure. And also, this is something we can't do on our own. Have you ever tried to change your heart? Have you ever tried to stop liking something? That's hard. And with tangible things, that we, maybe we can do it. But with God, have you ever tried to get yourself to love God more? That's impossible. But the promise of Deuteronomy 30 that Jesus fulfills, this is all the way back in the Torah. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring for generations so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And then we see here in Colossians 2 this promise fulfilled in Christ. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not synthetic, it's authentic by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We believe in him, our flesh is put off. Our our flesh is put to death. Now we get to baptism. Paul addresses um, this carnal way of thinking and living, this fleshly, worldly, that I can pay my dues to the local gods. I can also uh, obey these Jewish commands and I can let Jesus be my savior. All the same, these carnal ways of thinking are put to death in baptism. Let's read in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him 
through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I have so much more to say about a life that is baptized. This is not just a one-time event. When you put your faith and your hope in Jesus, it's a symbol of your death to your sin and being raised to new life in Christ. I have so much more to say about that that we'll get to next week. But for today's passage, Jesus has put to death this carnal way of thinking so that in him, in his word, we would have life. Mark 8, 34, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. We know what that cross means, right? He must die. He must give himself up and follow me. John 3.30, again, he must increase. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. All of this is putting Jesus at the forefront, following Jesus, following his words. He must increase so that by his spirit, I will decrease. Not, I've got to decrease myself. That was, that was the, the, some of the other religious beliefs that the Colossians were being pressured into. You've got to decrease yourself so that Jesus can be made much. No, 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 no. You make much of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will decrease you. The Christian life is not set apart and resurrected on our own power. The Christian life is dependent on and united to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See to it that no one takes you captive by empty and deceitful, fruitless thinking. Guard yourself with the wisdom of Christ. You may have been convinced that God doesn't love you. You may be convinced that he doesn't even exist. You may have been plundered and left spiritually bankrupt, believing that God is responsible for all the pain in your life. You may have been robbed of whatever hope and faith you once had because of something someone did to you that you can't forgive or because of something you did to somebody that you can't forgive yourself for. But friend, those lies, those hostilities towards God are put to death in Christ. They have no power over you in Christ. your weakness, your desire to buy into the wisdom of the world. Jesus Christ put that to death when he died on the cross. That hostility towards God was buried with him in the grave. And the only thing that rose on the third day was the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power in you to put to death your sin and to raise you in new life. The Christian life is a set-apart life, a resurrected life. Not set apart and resurrected on our own power, but dependent on and united to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. The Christian life is a set-apart life, a resurrected life, dependent and united with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
we're going to go into a time of celebrating that this morning. We're going to celebrate communion together. We've got tables in the back. We've got a table up here to my left. Band, if you want to go ahead and come up and start playing. Um, what we have in Jesus is unlike anything this world will ever offer us. The world will leave us empty and spiritually bankrupt. It will deceive us into ways of thinking that pull us from God. But in Christ, we have life. If you have questions, if you've uh, made the decision to follow Jesus even this morning, or you're considering that, would you please come and talk to either Brian or I? For those of us who have been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to new life in him, we get the chance to celebrate communion today. We've got the elements in the back. Let's worship our Savior together.